Our text this evening is from John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. I'd like to begin reading back at verse 35 to bring in the context here as we are working our way through the Gospel of John. So again, beginning at verse 35, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. We live in a day when it is a virtue for pastors, considered a virtue, uh, for a pastor to spiritualize the Bible. And what I mean by spiritualizing is finding a spiritual meaning in every part of a Bible story finding symbolism and types and allegories in everything. And the thinking of the, that, that lies behind this allegorical approach is that there is a surface meaning to the story that has to do with the bare facts of the story, but then there is the deeper underlying spiritual meaning that needs to be brought out of hiding that is said to be the real meaning. And probably the greatest, or we might say the worst example, depending upon your perspective, the greatest or the worst example of the spiritualizing of a text has been handed down to us from Origen, an early church theologian from Alexandria. And he explains the parable of the Good Samaritan this way. He says, in, and this is from uh, gotquestions.org, uh, where they summarize his view. It says, in his allegorical view, the man who is robbed is Adam, Jerusalem is paradise, Jericho is the world, the priest is the law, the Levites are the prophets, the Samaritan is Christ, the donkey is Christ's physical body, which bears the burden of the wounded man, the wounds are his sins, and the inn is the church. The Samaritan's promise to return is a promise of the second coming of Christ. should be appalled at that kind of, uh, of an interpretation. 
Study of the parable certainly indicates that they do involve allegory, but Origen went way too far. There is a spiritual lesson in parables, and really in all Bible stories, because they ultimately point to Christ. But we have to be careful that we're not just guessing at the spiritual meaning of the Bible stories. And there's a lot of guessing that goes on today. In fact, I did an experiment and Googled the spiritual meaning of David's sling. Now, I didn't spend a lot of time looking, but I didn't find any spiritualizing of his sling, but I did find rather quickly a spiritualizing of those five smooth stones that he picked up. So there's somebody out there that's actually saying those stones represent faith, obedience, service, prayer, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The smoothness of the stones is said to depict that these are gospel principles that have been proven to defeat the Goliaths in our lives. Well, this is not correct, a correct way to interpret scripture, and yet this is a very easy thing to do. Some do it because it makes them seem sophisticated and spiritual, especially when you can spiritualize something in the Bible in a way that no one else has ever done before. Some do it because there are spiritual lessons that are forthcoming that seem very helpful. And so the end is thought to justify the means. I bring up this problem of allegory and the spiritualizing of Bible stories because I once heard a sermon on Genesis 28 that I read earlier, which is where we find the story of Jacob's dream of this ladder reaching to heaven. And the pastor said that the ladder was a type of Christ. Now, a type is a picture or a shadow of a spiritual reality, something physical that depicts or points to something spiritual. And the explanation I heard was that the ladder in Jacob's dream was said to symbolize Christ and how Christ serves as a bridge between heaven and earth, bringing together God and man. And I immediately thought, no way, this is spiritualizing this text. I could agree that Christ is like that ladder. He certainly bridges the gap between God and sinners. That concept makes sense. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And yet we have to remember how the reformers taught us to be careful not to spiritualize scripture. And the principle that we gain from them is that you, you follow the plain meaning of a text. You don't view it as an allegory unless there's a good reason to do so from the Bible itself. Either a literal interpretation makes no sense, like Jesus saying he's a door. Well, of course, he's not really a door. We know that that's a figure of speech. Or the Bible itself tells us there is symbolism going on, like when Jesus tells us in the parable of the sower that the seed is the word. Well, the thing is, when that, I heard that sermon from Genesis 28, I didn't know that the Bible does justify what that minister was saying about Jacob's ladder. The problem was that I didn't remember the text that we are considering this evening from John 1, verse 51, where Jesus says he is that ladder. This is allegory, you see, that scripture itself supports. Well, this evening, I want to consider these verses under the theme of Jesus, Jacob's ladder. And even though this reference to Jacob's ladder doesn't take place until the very last verse of this section, this verse is what stands out as the main point. Everything here relates to this powerful assertion that the Lord makes about himself. And I've developed this theme of Jacob's ladder under two points. First, what? Where we will consider the Old Testament history, the story from the Old Testament. And then second, the fulfillment, as we find it taking place in Jesus and in what is happening with the men with whom he is interacting. 
So we'll begin with what? Um, Jesus says in verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus introduces this amazing declaration with the repetition of what is the word for amen. When you conclude a prayer with the word amen, you are saying, may it be, or this is truly what I want to happen. And we know that verse 51 is important when it is introduced by a double amen. Jesus is calling attention to the fact that he is saying something important, and he is emphasizing that this is something that will undoubtedly happen. So what will happen? What is Jesus talking about? Well, he says to his disciples, particularly Nathaniel, you will see heaven opened, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, when Jesus talks about the angels of God descending and or ascending and descending on the Son of Man, that immediately makes us think of Genesis 28 and Jacob's dream. The events of Genesis 28 took place early in Jacob's life as a young man. Jacob had just received the, the covenant blessing from his father Isaac. And as an important part of protecting Jacob spiritually and ensuring the fulfillment of the covenant promise through a godly line of believers, um, Isaac wisely sent Jacob away to Badanaram in order to find a wife among believers rather than from among the pagan Canaanites. And it was while Jacob was traveling on this errand that he came to a certain place and spent the night. We are told the detail that he used a stone as a pillow and he lay down to sleep. The Holy Spirit then recorded in Scripture what Jacob then dreamed. I want to read again from Genesis 28, verses 12 through 17. It says, and he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. We notice several things about this dream apart from what Jesus tells us in John's gospel. There's first of all the surface detail to consider, that, uh, which is that this ladder may actually be a stairway. Um, the Hebrew can certainly refer to a ladder, but it can also refer to the stairs that would ascend and descend on a ziggurat, which was an ancient brick structure from Old Testament times that was, had, had multiple stories to it. I can recall as a child seeing an artistic rendition of Jacob's dream, and it actually showed this grand staircase going from earth to heaven. It looked like the kind of staircase you would see in a mansion, except that this one extended for what looked like miles uh, into the distance up into heaven. Well, a ziggurat's staircase wouldn't have been as fancy as what that artist pictured, but the point is well taken that what Jacob saw in his dream may not have been a ladder exactly. 
he saw some kind of a structure that connected heaven and earth, something like a staircase or a ladder. And it's very obvious, based on the context here, that, um, that the scene that took place in Jacob's mind was naturally fertile with all kinds of spiritual significance. For one thing, what he saw spoke of the fact that God, after the fall, was not totally absent from this earth. Angels are God's messengers, and the fact that they are ascending and descending speaks of activity as they carry out God's will, apparently going down to earth to carry out a mission that the Lord has given them, only to then return to heaven to be reassigned a new mission. Now, it's possible that this vision could have had no more significance than to signify this ongoing work of God's providence. By providence, we mean God sustaining and ruling all things of his creation. Perhaps the angels in this dream are simply meant to convey that God continues to carry out his will on earth. And that alone would be significant because we know that the fall of man into sin led to a loss of fellowship between God and man. We read that before the fall, God and, and Adam walked in the garden together. There was direct interaction, there was fellowship, which fell by the wayside after the fall as part of the curse because of our sin. So God withdrew himself from man. There was this barrier of separation. And yet God did not leave this earth or really any part of his material creation to its own whims or to natural laws as deists tell us. God has continued to be involved with his creation, and Jacob's dream at least spoke of the fact that God had not abandoned his creation altogether. At the same time, we know that Jacob's dream spoke of something more than just providence. This ladder or staircase says something about God and, and, and about man's spiritual relationship to God in the covenant. The dream clearly has spiritual significance based on what the Lord says to Jacob in the context of this dream. In Jacob's dream, the Lord is standing above it, it says in the ESV. It could be, um, instead of it, the word him, that the Lord is standing above Jacob. The natural reading of the text has us picturing the Lord speaking down to Jacob from the top of this stairway or ladder, and from there addressing him with wonderful words that speak of God's covenant, by which God saves his people from their, their sins and restores fellowship with them. God is repeating the covenant promises made to Abraham and Isaac, and at the heart of this promise of blessing is really the promise of the coming Messiah. Now, that word isn't directly used here, but that offspring of Jacob, through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed, is a reference that's a promise of the Messiah. Galatians in the New Testament makes it clear that this wording is about the gospel of Jesus. Galatians 3 verse 8 says, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And then Galatians 3.16 explains further, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And so that this promise was repeated to Jacob in his dream rather naturally leads us to understand that this dream is about the Messiah, the, the promised Messiah, who we know as Jesus Christ. And this is, in fact, confirmed for us in the New Testament 
specifically here in John 151, in the words of Jesus to Nathanael, truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's summarize what Jesus is saying. He is the Son of Man, and he is saying that he is that ladder or staircase joining heaven and earth. Now, that certainly is an allegory. This is certainly here a figure of speech. Jesus is not literally a ladder, but there is a spiritual sense in which he is that ladder on which the angels of Jacob's dream were ascending and descending. He is the one who is making all of the activity of these angels possible, and their activity has directly to do with him and his role in joining heaven and earth. Now, we don't know a lot about angels. The word means basically messengers, and sometimes they were involved in communicating messages from God, but they were also messengers in the sense that they would perform errands on behalf of the one sending them, who is God. And it seems very significant to me that John has just said, Jesus, the Son of God, is the Word of God, And now we have angels ascending and descending on him as messengers of God. Words, as we think of just words as a a concept, they are the outward expression of what is going on in someone's mind. And as the Son, Jesus knows the Father's mind. He knows the Father's will. And as the Word, the Son then brings into reality the thoughts of God. The way scripture puts it is that all things were made through the word. And Genesis tells us that God created all things by speaking. By saying, for example, let there be light and there was light. Which means that when we think of anything that God is accomplishing in his creation, it is through his son, God's word. And this includes providence as well as creation. This includes even the roles of angels. For scripture tells us that God uses angels to accomplish his will, not that he always does or only does um, things through angels, but they do play an important role. Psalm 103, verse 20 says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. I find that language very significant. The angels obey the voice of God's word, which means... They obey Jesus because he's the word. Scripture also explains the role of angels in Psalm 91 verse 11 as heavenly beings commanded by by God to guard us as believers in all of our ways. Hebrews 1.14 says they are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. These verses combined with Jesus, as the ladder upon which these angels ascend and descend, tell us that these angels do their work through Jesus and for Jesus. And that they are ministering spirits who serve us and guard us as believers, tell us that these angels are being sent in love for purposes related to our salvation. So all of this combines to tell us that the role of Jesus as a ladder is indeed related to the covenant and salvation and bringing together heaven and earth. The reconciling, you understand, of a holy and offended God with sinners. The idea that Jesus bridges the gap as a mediator between God and man is an idea that's grounded in Jesus as Jacob's ladder. And while our text does not state 
outright the basis for this joining of heaven and earth after the fall. We know the basis is the atoning work of Christ on the cross. The latter by which God acts to bless sinners on earth through the Christ is specifically in the way of Christ standing in our place before the justice of God. Jesus, as John the Baptist has said twice now here in the text, he is the Lamb of God. The first time he said he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he has done so by offering himself as a sacrifice for sin to pay the penalty of the law on behalf of all who look to him by faith. And so if we kind of bring everything together, Jesus is the latter because he is the Lamb. And we see the fulfillment of this role and what is happening in the text before us as Jesus gathers disciples to himself. Some are perhaps being converted over against those who already believe, who are being brought to a greater understanding in their faith, as their understanding of Jesus as the Messiah. But either way, sinners are experiencing the results of Jesus being Jacob's ladder. So come to verse 43. Jesus has already gathered some disciples, Andrew and his brother Simon, who became known as Peter. They have decided to follow Jesus. The apostle John, we believe, also followed Jesus along with Andrew. We think he is that second disciple who's not named, but that's very typical of John uh, in his gospel to leave out references to himself um, other than veiled references like this. It's been suggested that there is evidence that behind the scenes, John the Apostle talked to his brother James and got him to follow Jesus. Now, I didn't bring this up before, but this idea is suggested by verse 41, where it speaks there of Andrew first finding his own brother Simon, notice the word first, and testifying to him that Jesus is the Christ. And there's a lot of debate about what is meant by first, and uh, a large number of people think that the idea behind the word first is that he was the first to call his own brother to follow Christ and that John, by implication, was the second to do this. But anyway, we know that John's brother James also ends up becoming a disciple of Jesus. And now in the verses before us, we have two more disciples added to the number. We have Philip and we have Nathaniel, who is probably the, the Bartholomew who is mentioned in the Subnoct synoptic gospels um, because Bartholomew seems to be a formal name meaning son of Tolmai while Nathaniel would then have been his personal name a Hebrew name in fact meaning God has given the point is that Jesus is gathering men to himself who are following him as disciples and who are if they are seeking him for the right reason not just going to Uh, to him to learn from him as a rabbi a lot of important truths they're not just following him as an example of someone with good character and, and wisdom for life but if they're following him for the right reason they understand his significance as the lamb of god who has come to take away the sin of the world in other words to be a disciple of jesus involves trusting in him as savior now, it's impossible to know at this point if these men have a saving relationship with Jesus. And that's perhaps shocking to hear that, but the fact is um, you can have the right knowledge of who Jesus is. The, the Satan knows who Jesus is. That doesn't mean that they necessarily have a correct relationship with him. They are, though, indeed saying the right things about who Jesus is. 
The testimony of Andrew to his brother Simon in verse 41 was, we have found the Messiah. And uh, remember how Jesus had asked earlier, what are you seeking? And the trouble is that many people in Israel were seeking the Messiah, but they were seeking one who would deliver them from the political and military oppression of Rome. And uh, this was related in general to people looking for a Messiah who would be a king, giving them great, a great earthly life of peace and wealth. But what was absent from many was an understanding of the Messiah as one who had come to reconcile sinners to God by the offering of himself as a sacrifice, a sacrifice for sin, a payment uh, uh, to the point of death to pay for the sins of his people. They didn't understand the necessity of faith in the Messiah as a way to be a part of his spiritual kingdom that was all about covenant fellowship with God. We know that, if not from the start, at least eventually, Andrew and Simon Peter, as well as James and and John and Philip and Nathaniel, would seek from Jesus salvation from sin. Um, The report regarding Philip and Nathaniel, the topic, the verses before us this evening, is also very promising because of what these men say about Jesus' identity. In verse 45, Philip testifies to Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip rightly understands that the entire Old Testament is ultimately about the Messiah. The law of Moses, especially if you think of the ceremonial law with its sacrifices, that all pointed to Christ as the Lamb of God. The prophets foretold a son of David who would reign eternally. Um, Isaiah in Isaiah 53 spoke of a suffering servant who would die under the penalty of sin, but who in the end would see his offspring who had been made by him to be accounted righteous. Philip makes the amazing statement that this one who is spoken of throughout the Old Testament is the hope of God's people. He knows to be Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth, and Jesus was the adopted son of Joseph, and so these things were known. Jesus was known as a man who had grown up among them, and yet someone, as Philip is pointing out, of much greater significance. The wording in the Greek has Philip ending his testimony about Jesus really with the word Nazareth. So that's the word that apparently sticks in Nathaniel's mind as he's hearing this report, and uh, the word Nazareth is a detriment to his belief. He asks if anything good could come from Nazareth, and uh, Philip wisely replies, come and see. And uh, Jesus talks with Nathanael and tells him what he was doing just moments before, thus displaying supernatural knowledge. And Nathanael responds, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So these men are saying wonderful things about Jesus. They understand who he really is, the the expression son of God and and king of Israel. These were messianic terms for the promised savior. Notice there's a a theme of seeing in these verses. Philip tells Nathaniel, come and see. By the way, there's a good lesson here in Philip's approach to witnessing, and certainly not the only approach, but I think it's, it's helpful to notice what he does here. He doesn't argue with Nathaniel. He could have tried to do that. Um, he doesn't try to convince him with the right argument. He simply invites him to come and see for himself. He says, 
Talk with Jesus yourself. Do your own investigation and make your own decision. And experience has shown that there is a principle here that is worth emulating. In our witnessing interactions with people, it's often the best approach to just invite people to see who Christ is for themselves. Rather than argue and debate over Jesus, invite them to read the scriptures for themselves. Invite them to church. Invite them to come and see who the Savior is. Remember, Jesus doesn't need defending. He doesn't need our logic. He doesn't need our powerful arguments in order to get people to to follow after him. Our role is to invite people to interact with Jesus. And that's all that is needed for Jesus to then take over and to convince sinners by means of his own supernatural methods that involve his word, that involve uh, uh, the Holy Spirit and this work that he does in men's hearts. With Nathaniel, the Lord revealed his omniscience, that is, his divine knowledge of all things. And uh, the way it took place was that Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and declared, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And by the way, this is a, a veiled reference to Jacob that further confirms that these verses have Jacob's life uh, in, in mind. Um, The name Jacob means to deceive or to cheat. And uh, he showed himself to be such in how he tricked his brother Esau out of his birthright. Remember how he took advantage of Esau's exhaustion and hunger and, and bought his birthright with a bowl of stew. Later, Jacob stole his father Isaac's blessing by by deceit, by pretending to be Esau, even to the point of using a disguise. Jacob was a man who, to all outward appearance, wanted the things of God's covenant. And he appeared to be godly, but he wanted the covenant blessings for self-serving reasons of power and wealth and was willing to pursue them even in sinful ways. And once Jacob is converted, God changes his name to Israel, meaning he strives with God, referencing Jacob's wrestling with God for the covenant blessing and testifying to the fact that Jacob is no longer striving with men over earthly blessings, but is now striving with God over the greater spiritual blessings of the covenant. Over against Jacob, Nathanael is said to be a true Israelite and a man in whom there is no deceit. The idea either is that Nathanael is not just an Israelite in name. There are plenty of those in Jesus' day, people who were just trusting in the fact that they were related to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the idea may be that Nathaniel, Jesus is saying, you are a true Israelite. In other words, you are a believer. Or the idea may be that he is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Kind of reading that all as one grand statement. But either way, he is an Israelite. He is a man who has followed in the footsteps of his father, Jacob, who became Israel. Who, was, who came to strive after God in the right way. And Nathaniel is a man who is not a hypocrite, a man who is therefore not one thing on the outside and another thing on the inside. We see something of Nathaniel's lack of deceit in his forthrightness regarding his doubts about Jesus since he is from Nazareth. He doesn't hold back his true feelings. There's certain goodness in that and uh, his lack of deceit is apparently such that he is not like Jacob was putting on a show of striving after spiritual things but in reality seeking the things of this world he was truly seeking the Messiah and the kingdom to come 
Nathanael is taken aback by what Jesus tells him about himself and responds, how do you know me? Jesus answers him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Again, there's a lot of seeing that's described here. He says, I saw you. Nathanael had been told by Philip regarding Jesus, come and see. And Jesus now says, I saw you. Nathanael knew that Jesus could have known this detail only by supernatural power, and he's so impressed that he exclaims, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And it is as Jesus goes on to explain what he will see that he, state, that he states, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Understand, this is a figure, this is all a figure of speech. Nathaniel and the other disciples are not going to see Jesus literally bridging heaven and earth with angels climbing up and down upon him. Now, the idea of heaven opening, uh, th- this is referring to those times when God interjects himself into our world or allows us to see divine realities. When Jesus was baptized, it says the heavens were opened. Um, in one of the gospel accounts, it says that the heavens were ripped open and the Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus in a form like a dove. Noah's flood involved the opening of the windows of heaven as God's judgments came down upon sinful man in the form of rain. Stephen, at his execution, declared, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In a vision, Peter sees the heavens opened, something like a great sheet full of unclean animals descending to the earth. But above all, the disciples, they will see heaven opened when they see Jesus perform miracles. And when they see him do those things that show that he is God, come down to earth as a man. Heaven has been opened in order for God to come down to us and save us. And Jesus is declaring himself to be that Savior, to be that one through whom and for whom the angels are ministering. God is active to save his people, and Jesus is at the heart of that activity. He is, as he declares, the Son of Man. That's a name that he gives to himself more than any other in the Gospels. And it's a name that speaks to the fact that he is not only the Son of God, but true man. And more than that, a man beyond all other men. He is the second Adam, the true representative of the race, able to be the needed mediator between God and man. For he as a man was perfect. He never sinned. And he can be that ladder joining heaven and earth because he is both God and one of us. He is the word who, as John has already said, became flesh and dwelt among us. Heaven has been opened. And as the Son of Man, he is not just a man, but the divine Messiah of whom Daniel spoke. I want to have you turn for a moment to to Daniel chapter 7, where we have a very key passage from the Old Testament on this term, the Son of Man. Uh, This actually... That term comes from here, the Old Testament, Uh, Daniel chapter 7, beginning at verse 13. 
where he says, I saw in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So he is a man who could be distinguished from God. We see that he is one who comes to the Ancient of Days. And yet he is himself God to be given dominion and the world's worship and to have an everlasting kingdom. This is the one the disciples are following. Now, do they know him in his fullness? Do you and I, do we fully grasp this son of man, this lamb of God, this ladder? Your calling is to come and see, explore and examine who Jesus is by studying the revelation of himself in the Bible. And if you see him with eyes that have been opened by humility and faith, you will see heaven opened. You will see that Jesus is the bridge between yourself as a sinner and your holy God. And you will trust in him to be that ladder, that stairway that you need in order to get to heaven. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man, this one who is your Son and who has been uh, made flesh to dwell among us, your incarnate Son, who is self fully God. And uh, Father, we look forward to the day when we will see him in all of his glory. And yet we thank you, Father, that in seeing Christ we have seen Um, As he's revealed himself in scripture, we've seen heaven opened. We have seen that indeed you are working to reconcile sinners to yourself. We thank you for Jesus, our ladder, this one who bridges um, us here on earth with you in heaven, uh, making it possible for us to enjoy covenant fellowship. We thank you that long ago Jacob in this dream was able to uh, have the promise repeated of his offspring, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, we know as Jesus. So, Father, we thank you for these truths, and uh, may they be driven home to our hearts, to our comfort, and to our encouragement, and ultimately to our challenge, Lord, that we would grow in our understanding of who you are, um, of the fact that you are not just a man, but you are God himself. You are the King of Israel, the Son of God, also the Son of Man, all of these things. Uh, Lord, give us, we pray, a greater trust in you and a greater love for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.